In recent years, a shift in society and the availability of the internet have made certain topics more approachable to discuss. But one thing that is still considered a taboo subject to discuss is the terrifying act of cannibalism. Although most of us can't imagine participating in it, cannibalism is startlingly common, not only in the animal kingdom, but across certain time periods and cultures in human history. There are many instances in the Victorian era alone that tell tales of human cannibalism taking place. Of course, we are all familiar with the tale of Jack the Ripper, but in today's episode of Cold Case Detective, we are going to take a deeper look at two terrifying cases of Victorian era cannibalism. Levi Boone Helm. Also known as the Kentucky Cannibal, Levi Boone Helm was born in Lincoln County, Kentucky, on January 28, 1828, to Joseph and Nancy Wilcox Helm. He grew up in what was described as an honest, hard-working, and well-respected family, but Levi was very much the black sheep of the group. As a child, he enjoyed displaying feats of strength and agility, and could often be found baiting older, bigger men into fights, and showing off a party trick where he threw his knife into the ground and picked it up while on horseback at full gallop. The family moved to Missouri at some point during Levi's childhood, but this didn't seem to change things. Levi always seemed to harbour a disdain for authority, On horseback, he once rebuffed a sheriff's attempt to arrest him, walking his horse up the courthouse stairs and into the courtroom while circuit court was in session. Here, he began to verbally harass the judge. At the age of 20, in 1848, Levi married 17-year-old Lucinda Browning, with whom he had a daughter. The marriage very quickly began to disintegrate, however, as Levi became known for his heavy drinking, physically abusive behaviour, and riding his horse into the house. He frequently beat his wife, to the point where she ultimately petitioned for a divorce. Levi's father paid for the costs, leaving the family bankrupt and with their reputation in tatters. Having single-handedly ruined his family, Levi decided to move on to California in search of gold. In 1850, he asked his cousin, Littlebury Shute, to travel with him. Initially, Littlebury agreed, but later he backed out of the trip. Infuriated by his cousin's refusal to carry out their original plan, Levi stabbed him in the chest, killing him instantly, and then he headed west alone. However, Levi would not get off so lightly this time. He was pursued relentlessly by the brother and friends of Littlebury Shute, who eventually captured him. From here, Levi ended up in an asylum, where he'd landed due to his behaviour during captivity. After being admitted to the mental institute, he began speaking less and less, and eventually convinced a guard to take him on a walk through the woods. These walks became routine, which led to Levi gaining the guard's trust, which he used to his advantage, escaping during one of these scheduled excursions. Levi returned to his original plan, to head west to California, 
On his way there, he murdered several men in various altercations, eventually committing premeditated murder. His horrifying behaviour did not go unnoticed, however, and he was forced to continually be on the run as law enforcement and vigilante justice searched for him. At this point, Levi decided to team up with six other men while fleeing. He confided in these men that he had eaten all or part of his victims, saying, quote, Many's the poor devil I've killed at one time or another, and the time has been that I've been obliged to feed on some of them. This appears to be the first report of cannibalism on Levi's part. Naturally, it was not smooth sailing from here. While wandering the trail en route to Fort Hall, Idaho, the men were attacked by Native Americans, forcing them to flee further into the wilderness that they were unfamiliar with. Short on provisions, they decided to kill their horses and consume their meat, using the hide to make snowshoes. But the winter was harsh and unforgiving, and the journey long. Without nature on their side, the number of party members slowly dropped down from seven men to two. It was just Levi Helm and a man known as Burton. When Burton could go no further, Levi left him behind, but then thought better of it and decided to go back to him. He returned just in time to hear Burton pull the trigger on himself. Levi ate one of Burton's legs and parceled the other one up to take with him. His movements after this are hazy at best, but at some point, someone discovered him at a Native American camp and then accompanied him to Salt Lake City, Utah. Despite having a wealth of money on him, Levi reportedly never thanked the man who'd escorted him, not for feeding him, clothing him, or transporting him. Unsurprisingly, Levi got into trouble while spending time at Salt Lake City. Upon becoming a wanted fugitive by the law, he fled to San Francisco, California. While there, he killed a rancher who'd befriended him and taken him in, sheltering him from authorities. After this, Levi went on to Oregon and resumed robbing people to survive, frequently murdering them. In 1862, after drinking heavily, he gunned down an unarmed man named Dutch Fred in a saloon before fleeing. While on the run, he ate another escapee who he'd been traveling with. At last, Levi Boone was caught, but the public was not safe for long. He begged his older brother, Old Tex, to help him out. A wealthy individual, Old Tex paid off the witnesses to his brother's crimes so the authorities couldn't successfully convict him. Upon his release, Levi accompanied Old Tex back to Texas. It seemed that Levi Helm's reign of terror would never end as he began reappearing in many of the spots he'd already run from. He was finally apprehended for good after teaming up with crime boss Henry Plummer and his gang where Levi and four other gang members were captured, arrested, and tried in secret. During the trial, Levi kissed the Bible and committed perjury, accusing three-fingered Jack Gallagher, a close friend and fellow gang member, of committing Levi's own crimes. Ultimately, the Montana vigilantes hanged Levi, along with the other four captured gang members, in Virginia City, Montana, on January 14, 1864, in front of 6,000 people. Allegedly, when the executioner approached Helm, he exclaimed, quote, Every man for his principles. Hurrah for Jeff Davis. Let her rip. Before jumping off the hangman's box before it could be kicked away. He also reportedly told fellow gang member Jack Gallagher to stop making a fuss. There's no use being afraid to die. 
It seems obvious that Levi Boonhelm had very little regard for human life. His life was, it seemed, unimportant, as was anyone else's who stood in his way. His unhinged and turbulent temper, strong build, and ruthless love for violence made him a man to be feared, his reputation bringing terror into the hearts of those who so much as heard the villain's name. Levi was buried in Boot Cemetery in Virginia City. He's noted as being one of the cruelest men of the Wild West, and has left behind a legacy of horror and savagery. Some estimates of his kill counts put it as likely being around 11. However, it seems likely that his true victim counts could be much, much higher. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America Podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mew. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. Alfred Packer. Born January 21st, 1842, Alfred Packer, sometimes referred to as Alfred Packer, was one of three children born to James Packer and Esther Greiner. In the early 1850s, the family moved from Pennsylvania to LaGrange County, Indiana, where James Packer got a job as a cabinet maker. Having a bitter relationship with his parents, Alfred moved out of the family home in his late teens and began working as a shoemaker in Minnesota. He enlisted twice in the Civil War, once in April of 1862, where he stayed for eight months, and once in June of 1863, where he remained until April of 1864. On both counts, he was discharged for his epilepsy, which caused him to have seizures as much as once every two days. Over the next nine years, Alfred Packer worked many varying jobs, from a hunter to a ranch hand, but between his epilepsy disorder and poor attitude, he was unable to pin down long-term employment and a steady income. By many accounts, Alfred was not a kind, honest, or hard-working man. In fact, he was generally disliked and distrusted by those who interacted with him. He was described as argumentative, light-fingered, and generally a difficult person to get along with. This was likely why he struggled so much to find long-term employment. Alfred even reportedly spent time working as a guide, but those who knew him commented that he often got lost, and therefore this job did not suit him well. He later went on to work some mining jobs in Colorado and Utah, but found no prosperity there either. Then, in November of 1873, everything changed when Alfred stumbled upon a group of 20 men who were heading for Beckenridge, Colorado, from the Bingham County Mines near Salt Lake City, Utah. Word had quickly spread from Colorado that gold had been found, and so the men were traveling there in hopes of discovering wealth. The group encountered Alfred about 25 miles from where they began their trip. According to one of the group's members, a man named George Tracy, Alfred had asked where they were going and if he could join. Since he was low on supplies and had no money, the men were reluctant to bring him. 
However, Alfred told them that he was a guide and could lead the way with his vast knowledge of the land, and so they thought that he could be a useful and worthwhile addition to the team. Things did not go as expected, however, when it quickly became obvious that Alfred didn't actually know anything about the area the group was traversing. He was described by the other men as greedy and lazy, and his seizures made him a huge liability, making the journey to Colorado stretch on for longer and longer. They made very little progress towards their goal, and given the late time of year, the winter weather was gradually becoming worse. The horses and wagons began to get bogged down, and provisions eventually ran out, so the men resorted to eating the horses' feed just to survive. The best part of two months passed before the men found any glimmer of hope. On January 21st, 1874, they came across Chief Ure's camp in Colorado. Ure was the Native American chief of the Tabawash band of the Ute tribe. He boasted excellent leadership abilities, to the point that he was noticed by US officials and spent much of his life attempting to put together treaties with settlers and the government. Given his reputation as a man of peace, Alfred's group attempted to approach Chief Ure for help. Looking emaciated and bedraggled, they entered the camp, scaring away some members of the tribe. But, true to his reputation, Chief Ure welcomed the men with open arms, feeding them and offering them shelter. Familiar with the lands and the weather at that time of year, the chief suggested that the men postpone their trip to the gold mines until spring that year. He told them that he'd feed and shelter them as long as they stayed, should they choose to wait out the bitter winter. While many men were happy to wait until conditions improved, just as many were not, worried that by the time the group made it to the mines, there would be nothing left. At the beginning of February, after spending some time recovering and preparing for the grueling journey ahead, 11 men of the group decided they wanted to move on. Seeing that he could not dissuade them, Chief Ure provided the men with provisions and directions on how to safely traverse the harsh path ahead, directing them along the river, avoiding the mountains. It would take marginally longer this way, but it meant the journey would be far safer. Unsatisfied with the lengthiness of the route suggested by the chief, Alfred presented the idea that the group take a more direct path. He secured the support of five men, who agreed and decided to follow him. Meanwhile, the remaining five men who wished to leave but take the safe road did so. They reportedly met with awful weather conditions and were found half-starved by workers with the government cattle camp near Gunnison, Colorado, which is where they stayed until April. On February 9th, Alfred and his five followers left the camp. For a while, they too followed the river, but then cut up a winding trail to the San Juan Mountains. This decision was hastily made when the men began to run out of food. They also did not sport heavy clothing or snowshoes, had run out of matches, and had no flint. They felt that the quicker they headed into the mountains, the quicker they'd come out at their destination. But this was not the case. In fact, the only one who would return from those mountains was Alfred. On April 16th, 1874, Alfred emerged from the woods alone. There was no sign of his party, made up of Shannon Wilson Bell, James Humphrey, Frank Miller, George Noon, and Israel Swan. The 32-year-old man made his way across the frozen lake bed to the Los Pinos Indian Agency near Siwash, Colorado. He had rags wrapped around his feet and stumbled into the building, pleading for food and shelter. 
The agency men fed him, but Alfred threw up everything that he ate. He noted that his digestion had been altered due to long bouts of near starvation. Over the years, Alfred told several different stories about what exactly went down in the San Juan Mountains. He told the agency staff that he'd been hired by his group of five as a guide, but that he'd become snowblind and had been left behind. He explained that Israel Swan, the oldest member of the group at 65 years old, had given him his rifle for protection, but continued on without him. He claimed to have survived on little more than rosebuds and roots as he tried to get by and find his way back to civilization. The agency men noted that, despite what he said, Alfred Packer did not look like a man who'd been starved for two months. In fact, he looked relatively healthy. However, they did not consider this further and allowed Alfred to stay at the agency for 10 days before he told them he wished to return to Pennsylvania. Before leaving to get supplies for the trip home, he sold Israel Swan's rifle for $10, $224 in today's money, claiming he desperately needed the cash. In the small town of Swatch, Alfred took up a room in Dolan's saloon, owned by a man named Larry Dolan. Larry later claimed that Alfred spent around $100 during his stay, the equivalent of $2,249 today, and that he even offered to lend Larry $300. He also spent $178 in the general store, and witnesses recalled seeing him using different wallets. During his stay in the town, Alfred drank heavily and daily, and often gave different stories about the trip he had just returned from. The townspeople gossiped incessantly about him, his odd antics, and the tales that he'd been telling. Then, new faces arrived in town. One of them was a man named Preston Nutter, who'd been one of the men to remain at Chief Yore's camp until the spring. Preston encountered Alfred at the saloon and questioned him about where the rest of his party was. The 32-year-old told his tale, explaining that his feet got wet and as he was drying them by the fire, the other men in the group went off to look for food and never came back. Preston immediately suspected that something was amiss. After all, even if he was a poor guide, he had been the leader and the guide of that group. Why would they leave Alfred behind? He also found it unnecessarily cruel that the men would just go off without him. Preston, like the agency staff, noted that Alfred did not appear like a starved man, and wondered how on earth he'd suddenly come into so much money. He also noted that Alfred had Frank Miller's knife, which was explained away as something Alfred had picked up when Frank had stuck it in a tree and left it there. Something just felt off to Preston, and he wasn't the only one to notice. Back at the Indian agency, the five men from the other group who'd left just before Alfred's party did showed up. The head of the agency, a man named General Adams, told them about Alfred's extraordinary story. Immediately, the men told Adams not to believe a word of it and explained that Alfred could not be trusted. They convinced Adams to send an officer to bring Alfred in for questioning. And just as the agency staff member arrived in Sawatch to do so, things were heating up between Alfred and Preston, who had brought other men along with him and was ready to confront Alfred about what really happened in the mountains in the last two months. Alfred was reluctant to return to the agency, but did so. Just before they left, Preston told the agency staff member everything he knew and suspected. Upon returning to the agency, the staff member explained to Adams everything that he had been told by Preston. Meanwhile, Alfred greeted the new arrivals at the agency like old, lost-long friends. 
Unconvinced by his words, the group demanded to know where the rest of his party was. Alfred told them the same story he had told the agency staff, and claimed to be surprised and concerned that they hadn't managed to safely make their way to the agency yet. When asked about how he came by his sudden wealth, Alfred explained that he'd been given a cash loan in Sawatch. However, an agency staff member who was dispatched to the town to verify this quickly returned to disprove it, and noted that witnesses had seen Alfred with multiple wallets. Suspicion was starting to grow amongst the agency staff, including General Adams, who remained determined to give Alfred the benefit of the doubt. He convened a council made up of the staff, himself, Alfred, and the five newly arrived miners so they could all get to the bottom of things and put the matter to rest. But they were interrupted by the horrifying scene of Ute tribesmen entering the agency, clutching strips of what they called white man's meat. They found the fleshy strips while hunting on the nearby hill. At the sight of this, Alfred collapsed to the ground and passed out. When he came to again, he began begging for mercy, promising a full confession. After a lengthy silence, he said, quote, This would not be the first time that people had been obliged to eat each other when they were hungry. In Alfred's first official statement about what took place between February 9th and April 16th, 1874, he explained that the men had quickly exhausted their food supplies due to the rough terrain and the amount of energy required to traverse it. While they did manage to survive on vegetation and rabbit meat for a short time, the cold appeared to drive all the animals away, leaving them hungry. A few days later, upon returning from gathering firewood, he found four men from his group standing around the dead body of Israel Swan. He had been killed via a blow to the head. According to Alfred, he simply accepted this and joined them in butchering the body. They split up his cash among them, and Alfred took possession of Israel's rifle. They packed up some body parts for the trip, but again, they found no wildlife as they progressed on their journey. Frank Miller was killed next, again from a blow to the back of the head. His share of Israel's money was redistributed, and Alfred took his knife. James Humphrey was the third victim, followed closely by a young George Noon. Alfred noted in his statement at this point, both he and the remaining man, Shannon Bell, swore on Almighty God that they would do no harm to each other. They vowed to never speak of the cannibalism and agreed they'd say the other men in the group succumbed to the harsh weather. However, despite their promises to each other and to God, things took a vicious turn when the pair camped out one night at a lake. Shannon Bell began screaming that he couldn't take it anymore and that one of them was going to die for food. He lunged at Packer with his rifle, ready to bash in his head, but Alfred deflected his ferocious attempts to do so, hitting Shannon in the head with his hatchet. At this point, he claimed his only fear was starving to death. Alfred ate some of Shannon's body, took his money, and then packed up some of the meat to take with him. He didn't think he'd survive, and just when he was losing all hope, he stumbled across the agency. Here, Alfred reportedly stated that he'd developed a taste for human flesh, and that he tossed some of the remaining scraps with some hesitancy. Immediately, at the close of his tale, the five miners from the other party said they did not believe the story. They claimed that Shannon would lay down his life for another. It was then decided that a search party would be made to look for the bodies. It was composed of the five miners, an agency clerk, and several agency officers, and Alfred Packer was the guide. 
But after two weeks, no bodies were recovered. The group reached Lake Fork of the Gunnison River when Alfred claimed that he was lost and the area didn't look right. Empty-handed and still without answers, the group turned and headed back. During the return journey, Alfred attempted to murder the agency clerk, a man named Herman Lauter, by using a knife he'd concealed in his clothing. He was, thankfully, unsuccessful and was caught, restrained, and arrested. At this point, General Adams, the man who'd always fought to give Alfred Packer the benefit of the doubt, admitted that he was indeed an extremely dangerous man. From here, Alfred was transferred to Sawatch and jailed outside of town by the sheriff. This was for his own protection, as word had spread throughout the town of his crimes and locals were keen to take justice into their own hands. During his imprisonment, Alfred withdrew his earlier statements and changed his story. He claimed that a blizzard had caused them to get lost and that, as he'd said in his previous statements, wildlife eluded them once they ran out of provisions. From here, the men began roasting and eating their shoes. At this point, they made a pact where if one man died, the others would consume their body so they would not starve. Israel Swan, again, was the first to pass. This time his demise came not from the hands of the others, but from hunger and exposure to the elements. Alfred signed this confession, and although it was not his first, it was the first one that he signed. Several months passed and spring folded into summer, the harsh and bitter cold replaced by milder days and plentiful sunlight. It was this change in weather that finally revealed the location of the bodies of the missing men. In August of 1874, an illustrator for a magazine stumbled upon the gruesome scene. All five bodies were lying at the foot of Slumgullion Pass, two miles southeast of Lake City, Colorado, in a pine-shaded gulch. The group had been within a very easy walking distance of the nearby city, had they chosen to follow the lake rather than ascend the mountains. After sketching the scene, the illustrator contacted the authorities. The five men were believed to have faced extreme violence, with all of them having been bludgeoned to death. Israel Swan was little more than bones, while Frank Miller was missing his head. The remaining bodies had skeletal legs and intact faces, their bodies rotting away. The discovery of the bodies raised many more questions for Alfred Packer to answer, and right away, the agency staff and other miners spotted the inconsistencies in his multiple stories. Firstly, Alfred said the men were killed in different areas, but here they were, all in one place. Secondly, both James Humphrey and George Noon had plenty of flesh left on their bodies that could have easily been eaten before Shannon devolved into a starved lunatic. Thirdly, a shelter had been built nearby that had the men's possessions inside and had clearly been used by Alfred during his time alone in the mountains. A well-trodden path between the shelter and the bodies could be seen. Evidence on the scene suggested that the deaths had occurred before the rations supplies had been depleted, causing authorities to theorise that Alfred had killed the men simply to rob them and then lived in the shelter for months, leaving only to remove flesh from the bodies as and when he needed it. Upon returning to Alfred's temporary jail, they found him missing. To this day, it's still unknown exactly how he escaped, but it seems likely that he either bribed the guard or somebody else bribed the guard for him. 
He was not located until almost a decade later, on March 11th, 1883, when he was approached by a man who was one of the party members who had chosen to stay behind at Chief Ure's camp. Alfred had been living under the alias of John Schwartz and was looking to buy supplies, but the man from the original party contacted the local sheriff, who arrested him. Once more in custody, Alfred signed another confession on March 16th, stating that Shannon Bell had murdered all the men while he was off scouting for food. Upon his return in the late evening, Alfred killed Shannon in self-defense by shooting him in the stomach, then hitting him in the head with a hatchet. He then went on to build the shelter because of the bad weather, and claimed that while he repeatedly tried to make his way back, the weather was too uncooperative. He stayed in this makeshift shelter for two months, feasting on the bodies whenever he needed sustenance. Alfred Packer went through his first trial in April that year, and was found guilty of the premeditated murder of Israel Swan. He was given the death penalty, but due to a technicality, he ultimately escaped this sentencing. Then in June of 1886, Alfred was tried again. This time, he was convicted of five counts of voluntary manslaughter and was sentenced to 40 years in prison. Around this time, it was revealed by local hunters that while the winter of 1874 had been harsh, the wildlife had been plentiful, throwing Alfred's argument that game was scarce completely out of the window. In 1901, after serving 18 years in prison, Alfred was granted parole. This came about as the result of a local newspaper, the Denver Post, printing several reports on how he was a decent man who had only done what he did to survive, and that the public had villainized him simply for trying to live through a harsh winter. The stories resonated with locals, who began to petition for his release. Eventually, Governor Charles Thompson relented to the pressure, and while he did parole Alfred, he refused to pardon him. After being released, Alfred went on to work as a ranch hand and a guard at the Denver Post. He died on April 23rd, 1907, aged 65, in Deer Creek, Jefferson County, Colorado. He was reportedly a charitable man who lived modestly. One neighbor recalled that Alfred had told him once that he'd tried to eat human meat, but it had made him sick while another commented on the eeriness of his piercing black eyes. There seemed to be mixed opinions about Alfred upon his release from prison. In 1980, a judge reportedly tried to get Alfred pardoned posthumously, but this attempt failed. Investigations in the 80s and 90s still do not conclusively agree about what really happened during those two months on the mountains. While a 1994 study showed that Shannon Bell had a bullet wound to the pelvic area, it doesn't definitely prove that one of Alfred's stories was right. After all, Shannon could have been shot upon returning to the camp to find Alfred was the one who'd killed the other party members. Many people are fascinated even today with the case of the Colorado cannibal, and whether Alfred was innocent or guilty is still highly debated in modern times. Regardless, we will likely never know for certain what truly happened between February 9th and April 16th, 1874 on the San Juan Mountains. And there you have the facts. Please leave a comment down below with your own theories and speculations, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. If you're still hungry for true crime content, you can check out the Cold Case Detective podcast by following the link below. Thank you for watching. Stay alert, stay safe, and I'll see you next time.